everyone. Uh, I invite you to um, open the, the, the many bundles of paper you've got. Hopefully in the middle there somewhere is the reading that Don's just read for us and also a bit of an outline of uh, where we're heading as we look at this passage together. We're back in Mark's Gospel, one final run in Mark's Gospel, uh, Mark 14 uh, to 16 in, in the coming weeks. And we, we come across, uh, I think, one of the most wonderful passages, beautiful passages uh, in all of Scripture this morning, Mark 14, 1 to 14. Let me pray again as we prepare to look at it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your knowledge of us, that you know our hearts, you know what motivates us, you know uh, the passions in our hearts, and we see the heart of this woman in this passage, and we long to have a heart like that. And so we pray, Father, that you, by your word and through your spirit, would change our hearts this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Pascal said this, however vast one's resources are, you are capable of just one great passion. However vast your resources, you are capable of just one great passion in your life. We all have one life, uh, one allotment of energy and resources and time and heart. Uh, let me ask, uh, what are you pouring your life into? What is your one great passion? Uh, here, as we jump back into Mark's gospel, we, we've been hearing from Mark's account uh, the passion of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. It's writ large on uh, virtually every page of Mark's gospel. Do you remember it back in chapter 10, verse 45, that wonderful verse? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is his passion, to pour out his life in service of us, to pour out his life to save us. And in Mark 14, we are reaching the final hours, the final days of that passion. Now, what will follow in the, in the coming weeks is scenes of uh, Jesus uh, following through on that plan, but also scenes of profoundly ugly human behaviour. Uh, even in the passage that Don read for us, I wonder if you, you, you saw moments of that. The start of the passage, verses 1 to 2, we, we see the human passion for power and control as, as the religious elite prepare to, keep, uh, to kill Jesus just to keep control. And then bookending the passage, do you see it at the end there, verses 10 and 11, another passion, a passion for, well, just money. As Judas, one of the disciples, was prepared to trade Jesus in for some profit. Uh, but amongst this ugliness, uh, Jesus' passion looks all the more beautiful because of it. And we're going to zoom in on his passion next week as we watch him share that, that famous last meal with his disciples, uh, a meal that we will remember together this morning. But, but today I want to share with you another meal, the meal that's picked up in these opening verses of chapter 14. And I want to show you another beautiful moment amongst the ugly scenes of these final verses in Mark's Gospel. Because amongst the passion for power and payment that we see on display here, as we watch Jesus preparing to pour out his life unto death for our forgiveness, uh, we meet this beautiful woman who, seeing what Jesus is doing and is about to do, responds by pouring out her future on Jesus. Uh, the scene, and you can see this on the outline there, is, is very simple, but it's beautiful. A woman pours out a jar some snort at her, but Jesus declares her to be beautiful. Let's look at each of those in turn. Firstly, this, this act of the woman, a woman pouring out her jar. As we look at it, uh, some context around this, this action. Uh, 
Uh, we meet her on the edge of a, a profound moment of remembrance for God's people. It's about to be the festival of the Passover. Uh, Mark uh, is time stamping this, this, this moment with this woman. Uh, he wants us to have the Passover in mind as, as Jesus heads to the cross. Uh, the Passover, uh, Exodus 12 picks it up. Uh, it commemorates uh, the exodus of God's people out of slavery uh, in Egypt to freedom again. Mark is preparing us to see that Jesus is the final Passover lamb. You remember in the Passover, the, the, the doors of God's people were, were painted with blood to mark them as his people, that they would be rescued as God's judgment came. And here we have Jesus preparing to be the final and ultimate Passover lamb. Uh, he will end up being killed during that festival. He will end up being killed as the fulfillment of that Passover promise. Jesus is God's final lamb. And he is the one who will pour out his life unto death to cover sin and to bring new life. And it's actually this idea of new life that is also one of the context markers of our passage. Do you see it there as we meet the woman in verse 3? Do you see where Jesus is as we meet her? He's at the home of Simon the leper. Uh, a leper no more by this stage his house is now filled with people he's no longer separated from the community they're all gathered around his table celebrating uh, well the healing that has obviously happened for Simon uh, this is a celebration meal uh, a home that has experienced this new life that Jesus has come to bring I mean what a beautiful meal that would have been to be a part of uh, the amount of celebration and thanksgiving that that would have been happening around that table but but the frame around the table and around the meal is is far from beautiful isn't it it's full of self-interest ugly self-interest for power for money and yet here in the darkness of what humans are capable of don't miss this beautiful woman clear-eyed full-hearted utterly devoted to jesus have a look at verse three while he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and she poured the perfume on his head. Now, if we've been following along in Mark's Gospel, and I know we've taken a break for a number of weeks, uh, we've met a woman just like this before. Do you, do you remember her? Uh, uh, in between uh, this passage, Mark 14, and well, there was Mark 13, that, that immense passage about the cross and how it was, if you like, the trigger point of all history. Uh, either side, we meet a woman. Do you remember her? At the end of Mark 12, uh, she was the widow with one coin, and yet with all her wealth, which was one coin, she she spent that coin it was an extravagant act and now on mark 14 we have another extravagant act another woman here with her alabaster jar each picture is a picture of extravagant devotion to jesus but each is different and i want to say that as we think about her act here in mark 14 it's worth bearing that in mind uh, uh, what's in their heart is exactly the same complete devotion complete commitment but what it looks like uh, is different in every case uh, let me give you an example from someone i met uh, some years ago his name was ken ramsbottom and he lived in sheffield and when i knew him he was in his uh, well final couple of years of life and by the time i got to meet him he was living in an uh, um, in his old age and in infirmity confined to a bed in the most abject nursing home i have ever been in in sheffield uh, sheffield does nursing homes like nowhere else in the world here was a here was a room with absolutely nothing in it bar a bed right in the middle and there was ken confined to that bed 
But when I met him in that bed, what he would spend most of his days doing, having been a follower of the Lord Jesus all his life, would be lie in that bed and sing the hymns that he knew from heart at the top of his lungs so that the other people in the nursing home could hear him. That was his act of extravagant devotion. And for this woman, here's what it looked like. It looked like pouring out this alabaster jar of perfume on Jesus. And I want you to notice, and you can see this on the outline there, three things about this extravagant act. Firstly, the most obvious, it's incredibly costly. I mean, the jar itself of alabaster was precious, but the contents itself were especially so. We're told they're pure nard, and I don't know much about pure nard, but we don't need to know because we're told it's worth a year's wages. I mean, this is no brute 33. This is the real stuff. A year's wages in that jar. But more than just the, the monetary value, the, the cost is even bigger than that because here's the second thing. She's actually, in pouring out that jar of nard, uh, she's pouring out her future on Jesus. Uh, the commentators argue that uh, a precious jar like this may well have been handed down as a family heirloom through, through a family and it had one of two purposes. It was either used as a payment, uh, a marriage dowry at, at her marriage or at the end of life uh, to anoint a loved one at burial. Uh, this was an incredibly precious jar and yet she sees Jesus who is about to pour out his life for her and she pours out her future on him. It's costly, uh, it's her future, and thirdly, her extravagance here is irreversible. Once the jar is cracked open, do you notice that? The, the, the top of the, the, if you like, the neck of the jar is smashed to open it. Uh, once that's happened, the contents can't be returned. Now the reality is we all live that way. We all have one life to pour out over time, our energy, our heart, our effort, our, our priorities, our one life. 2, 2 Samuel 14 verse 14 puts it like this, uh, life is like water being poured out on the ground. No one gets to end life with the jar full. And so this woman has made her choice how she would use that life. She pours out the whole thing on Jesus, her saviour, her king. This beautiful woman sees Jesus, sees his supreme value, and she is all in, in terms of her commitment. There's the first point. The woman poured out her jar. Here's the second. Some snorted. And uh, if you look at verses 4 and 5, and the indignation of those around the table as the woman does this, uh, that's the literal word used for them as they, they indignant amongst themselves. You imagine snorting, laughing, mocking. That's what's going on. They view her as ridiculous. I remember uh, visiting Ken in that Sheffield nursing home and on one of the visits I'm walking down his hallway and a, a caretaker who recognised me from a previous visit uh, was walking the other way and he said to me, oh, you're, you're coming to visit the singer, are you? Uh, with again that mocking tone in his voice. And so it is with this woman's act. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, well, why waste this perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and, and the money given to the poor and they rebuked her harshly. Now consider this. Those who are indignant and snorting at this woman, they're not randoms. They're not just people in the crowd. They're insiders. In John's account of, of this scene, it's Judas, one of the disciples who was leading the mockery. Yeah? Uh, but he's not alone. We're told some of them, it's the disciples who are doing this who still, and we've seen this all the way through Mark's Gospel, still don't see Jesus' value. 
Well, notice three things about their snorting rebuke. Here's the first of it. They regard her act as just, well, it's just wasteful. A misuse of resources. I mean, how could she ever justify that kind of extravagance? Well, ironically, we do justify our own extravagance all the time, but, but that's their high-handed tone here. And, and their indignation is, is, of this sort of largesse is, well, it's just distasteful to them. No one should do this. And they think this especially when you see there in verse 5, they take the, the moral high ground over the woman. She could have used it to, to, to help the poor. But it's a, folk, a fake concern for the poor. John's gospel, uh, as I said, of this, this account lets us know that Judas is leading the complaint, but then it also tells us this, he's in charge of the money and he's a thief. And so he sees a moment of opportunity, he sees the, the perfume being poured out and he, he, he imagines a different scenario where they sell that and he pockets some. Their concern for the poor is a thin-veiled uh, uh, mask to hide their cold hearts. But third, here's the other thing about their snorting, it is a complete miscalculation of value. We've already seen how much they value power. Do you remember back in Mark 10 as, as they were clambering for who would have the important seats in Jesus' kingdom? And, and we've seen how much here they value money. But to witness, as they do here with this woman, someone actually truly valuing Jesus, uh, it elicits in them snorts of mockery. And I think while we might recoil at their ridicule of this woman, if we ourselves don't see the value of Jesus, we too will never justify this sort of passion for him in our lives. Listen to this old quote by J.C. Ryle on this passage. The spirit of these narrow-minded fault finders is unhappily only too common. Their successes are to be found in every church. People who decry what they call extremes of religion and are incessantly uh, recommending what they term moderation in the service of Christ. If a man devotes his time, money and affections to the pursuit of worldly things, they don't blame him. If he gives himself up to the service of money or pleasure or politics, they find no fault. But if the same man devotes himself and all that he, all that he has to Christ, they can scarcely find the words to express their sense of his folly. He is out of his mind, they say. He is an enthusiast. He is a fanatic. And so we see the some who snort, but here's the third point. But she has done a beautiful thing. Jesus' response to this woman is entirely different. You see there, verse 6, leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Now, before we consider what he is saying about the woman and her act here, I, I want us first to grapple with what Jesus says about the poor. Do you see it there in verse 7? He says this, The poor you will always have with you. Remember, they wanted her to use the money uh, that this jar was worth for the poor. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them any time you want. But you'll not always have me. It's intriguing, isn't it? I mean, here's what Jesus is not saying. He's not saying here, You know what? The poor don't matter. Only I matter. I mean, his ministry has demonstrated the exact opposite of that thinking, hasn't it, all the way through. Uh, we, we know from the scriptures God's heart is for the poor. He's not saying that. He's also not saying this. He's not saying that the problem of poverty in our world is so insoluble, so massive, that, well, it's not even worth trying. And I think that's actually how we often justify our own extravagance. It's, it's not like I can help everyone anyway. No. 
Verse 7, Jesus is saying our responsibility to look after the poor. Do you see the word he uses there is a given. It's an always given. It's an always obligation. The opportunity to give to the poor and those in need is, is not actually an opportunity. It's an always uh, responsibility. In fact, Jesus' words here in verse 7 are a deliberate allusion to Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, where, where God's people are told that this is always their responsibility. In fact, they were meant to leave their fields, their land set up in such a way that the poor and those in need would be able to glean from the edges of the fields and always have what they needed. It wasn't meant to be done as a seasonal thing. It was meant to be always set up that way, always have provision for the poor. In other words, there's not meant to be anything noteworthy about meeting the needs of the poor in Jesus' mind. It's a basic human expectation of creatures who are made in the image of a God whose heart is for the poor. And I think the challenge for us is not to have our care for those in need around us in our city and beyond be, a, if you like, a seasonal flourish in our life that we do from time to time, perhaps around tax time, but an always disposition. The poor you will always have with you, says Jesus. That's a constant. But, you see what else he says in verse 7? Amidst the always of life, don't miss the unique opportunity, this unique window you have to see him clearly and to value him rightly and respond rightly. That opportunity to offer devotion to Jesus is, is actually both primary and it's possible right now, he says. I mean, it reminds me of the words we read together last Sunday from 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1. Do you remember them? Where, when the Apostle Paul says, now is the day of God's favour. Now is the day of God's salvation. Now's the moment. Jesus is saying to those snorting hearts around this table who can't see his value, you know, you won't always have me. You won't always have the opportunity to respond rightly before me. Now is that moment. In other words, there's something going on now around that table and in the coming hours as Jesus heads to the cross that is so significant that, even, uh, the, uh, that it's even more important than the immense problem of poverty in, a world, in our world, a problem that our God cares deeply about. And this woman has grasped that in this extravagant act. And they must grasp it too, and so must we. There is a human need in this world that is more important than all the poverty in this world put together. There is a reality so urgent that it supersedes everything. I was reading that verse this week and I was reminded of uh, some years ago on, on the ABC show Q&A. They were having in Sydney what was called the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. And during that festival they had some of the speakers uh, as panellists on the Q&A uh, episode. It's perhaps one of the most vitriolic episodes I've ever seen. But one of the panellists was a guy by the name of Peter Hitchens. And at the end of it, he was asked to describe what he thought was the most important and dangerous idea in our world. And here's what he said. The most dangerous idea in human history and philosophy remains the belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and rose from the dead. It alters the whole of human behaviour and all our responsibilities. It turns this universe from a meaningless chaos into a design place in which there's justice and there's hope. Jesus is saying here in this table, as they debate what's more important, the, the, the poor or, or Jesus, he, he, snort, uh, uh, he looks at these snorters and he says, you're missing the moment to respond rightly to me. Each life has such moments and how we respond to the reality of who Jesus is it actually supersedes all our other obligations because the eternal and lasting measure of life is how we respond to God's Son. 
And here we see the response Jesus commends, this woman pouring out her life to him. And as we finish, I, I want to show you three things about his commendation of her that I hope will encourage us. Here's the first of them. Such a brilliant phrase Jesus uses. Verse 8, you see it there? He commends her because she has done what she could. To Jesus, what is beautiful in our lives as we respond to him is doing what we can. I mean, how, how do we do that? Uh, in the details of different lives, it, it will look different for each of us. I, I've told you what it looked like for Ken Ramsbottom in his, his final year of life. Uh, let me tell you about another person that I met in my first few months here of uh, being uh, in Warunga. Uh, some of you will remember her. Her name was Kath Cock. And by the time I met her, she was already, again, uh, unable to come to church, but still connected to our church family. And I remember the, the pattern each week was that we would print off the service sheets and they'd stay flat like that. And the uh, guy, I think, would take them to her and uh, she would fold them for us to be ready for Sunday, just sitting up in her bed. And I remember meeting her on one of these occasions and, and she was uh, frustrated that that's all she was able to do, that she wanted to be more involved and she simply said this, all I can do now is I fold and I pray. Again, Jesus looks at that and he says it's beautiful. And that's this woman before him in Mark 14. She is beautiful with this jar, most likely her wedding dowry, she says to Jesus, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. She did what she could. And that's what honours God and it is what God honours in us. And therefore, the question for us as we look at this scene is, what can you do? And I don't ask that question to induce guilt in you. There's, I don't think a whiff of guilt in this passage. It's a, it's a question inviting opportunity. What can you do? With all that the king has filled your life with, well, what, what, what can you do in response? Uh, it's exciting to think about, isn't it? And as we think about it, I want to encourage you, don't settle for holding back. Don't settle for half-hearted devotion, as if by doing so we're preserving the contents of this life that God gives us, because it'll pour out anyway. Pour it out for him. He'll see it, even if others snort, and he will say it's beautiful. But not only has she done what she could, here's the second thing, uh, verse 8, she's done more than she could have imagined. You see what Jesus says in verse 8? She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for burial. Jesus sees this act as not some dramatic uh, random gesture, but a precious provision that he needs at that moment. As he prepares to walk the lonely path of the valley of the shadow of death, consider this woman pouring this oil on Jesus' head. And then consider the echo of, uh, well, the, the word of God in Psalm 23. You know that psalm so well, I'm sure. As the world plots Jesus' death, as he prepares to walk the dark valley, he fears absolutely no evil. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This scene is playing out in this moment. This unashamed woman, this mocked nobody is actually participating in God's perfectly fulfilled plan of salvation. Jesus, uh, to fulfill uh, the role of being a faithful Jewish man standing in our place, actually had to be anointed before burial. That's what was required of all Jewish people. And here in the chaos of the moments that will follow, as he's taken and as he, he's beaten and then he's crucified, there won't be time for anointing. And yet God, in his mighty hand of providence, has brought that about in this scene. 
He uses this unflinching devotion of this woman to prepare his faithful son for the tomb. And what she's done, we're told in verse 9, do you see it there? It's going to echo into eternity. Wherever the gospel is preached, this woman will be named as she is here in Warunga, 2022. Now listen to this quote I read this week. The sensible scolding onlookers fade into obscurity. While this rash extravagance, the rash extravagance of this humble woman is known wherever the gospel is preached. Know this. God's great, in God's great plan, not a single moment of our willingness to pour out our life in his service, none of that is lost. All of it will be threaded into the outworking of his glorious purposes in this world. And it thrills and empowers me, that reality, and I hope it does you. As we close, here's the third and final thing to note about Jesus' commendation of her. Her passion is simply an echo of her saviour's passion. Her extravagant act is completely in step with her saviour, who we read this of in 2 Corinthians 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that although he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. She's simply doing what he is doing. You know, there is a myth that sometimes rumbles around Christian circles that simply living our best life is what honours God. Just you be you and do what you're good at and be thankful to him. And, uh, well, that thankfulness is what, what honours God. And, yes, thanksgiving in our life for what he gives us does honour him. But Jesus declares here something that is not just good but beautifully good. And that is to be unashamedly choosing with our life to pour it out for him as she sees he's poured out his for us. I watched this woman smash this jar open and unashamedly pour it out on Jesus. And my mind goes to another smashed jar in the Bible. The one the Apostle Paul speaks of to show us what glorifies God. Do you remember it? It's in 2 Corinthians 4. And it speaks of the treasure of the gospel that Jesus has given us, uh, that, uh, that we have been saved by Jesus' death. And it says, you know what? That's actually the most valuable thing in your life. And it says, as of, uh, of your life, 2 Corinthians 4, let the jar crack so that all can see it. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may be revealed in ours. Now that's beautiful. Well, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you call us into this um, path of service and sacrifice and devotion. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus who poured out his life under death for us. We thank you for this model of uh, this woman pouring out her future in response. And we pray, Father, for hearts like hers. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.